0: I love and admire the work produced by the folks at the Weekly Typographic Podcast. Their weekly emails are one of the very few emails that I actually look forward to receiving. It's jam-packed, full of valuable, curated resources about what's happening in the type world. And one of the recent articles they directed me to was called North American Syllabics Fonts Developed in Collaboration with Indigenous Communities. This was a collaborative project between Netherlands-based type design company, TypoTech, and Canadian type designer, Kevin King, who is our guest today. This project is all about launching a series of unified Canadian syllabic fonts that support Indigenous language revitalization and preservation efforts in North America, changing the standards of future syllabics fonts. There is an excellent 16-minute video all about this project that I recommend checking out, and you can find the link in the show notes at talkpaperscissors.info. Nate Evangelista is helping me co-host again, having worked with me to research and develop questions and participate actively in the conversation with Kevin King. Nate, kindly reintroduce yourself to everyone listening.
1: Thanks again, Diana. What's up, everybody? I'm Nate the guy who went from studying bones, tissues, and muscles to studying counters, terminals, and bowls. I'm a graphic layout artist at TC Transcontinental and a proud GCM alumnus. I have had the utmost pleasure of being in Diana's advanced typography class in my final semester and experienced the unexpected joy of creating an original typeface. Not to mention, I was able to learn so much about the world of typography that many may not really know. Specifically, gaps that exist in type for other non-Latin alphabets, Canadian Aboriginal syllabics being one of them. What struck me most while doing my research was learning about the lengthy process type designers like Kevin King go through to get characters approved by the Unicode Technical Committee. It undoubtedly gave me a newfound appreciation and admiration for him and his efforts in Indigenous language revitalization and preservation.
0: To provide some context, syllabic writing systems have characters that represent syllables. There are base characters with four orientation possibilities that represent different ways to inflect the vowel of the syllable. It's a writing system that has great local variability among different communities. The big gap that Kevin King is working to bridge is that many of the glyphs in Canadian Indigenous writing systems are not recognized by Unicode the universal character representation standard for digital text. What that means is that picking up a smartphone, or a computer, or typing an email, or a text message, or doing any kind of work that we take for granted when we use our Latin alphabet, may simply not be possible for these communities. This creates a barrier to use, and it's one of the reasons that minority Indigenous languages are literally lost in translation, because of this lack of digitization. Kevin has written extensively about his work with syllabic typography guidelines, and the links to learn more can be found in the show notes at talkpaperscissors.info.
1: What many may not know about Canadian Aboriginal syllabics that came as a surprise for Kevin himself is that there is no original written orthographies as the founder of this writing system, James Evans, initially created punches that were used to cast, typeset, and print hymn books for the Cree peoples of northern Manitoba. What is actually most interesting is the ongoing debate of whether or not Evans did in fact bring syllabics to the Cree people. While many believe he did and credit him for bringing near-universal literacy to the indigenous population in Canada, some believe that this may have simply been a narrative perpetuated by Western missionaries and colonialists. Winona Wheeler, Associate Professor of Indigenous Studies at the University of Saskatchewan and a member of the Fisher River Cree Nation in Treaty 5 territory, spoke about the Calling Badger narrative, a sacred story well-known among the Cree about how syllabics were gifted to the people and the purposes it was given for. While there isn't conclusive evidence on where exactly the origin of syllabics comes from, Reconciliation and efforts to celebrate Indigenous traditions have become more prevalent, and we thank people like Kevin King who have dedicated their careers to collaborating with the Canadian Indigenous communities and working towards revitalizing and preserving their writing systems. Part of his work involves submitting several proposals to the Unicode Technical Committee. The Unicode standard provides a unique number for every character, no matter what platform, device, application, or language. It has been adopted by all modern software providers and now allows data to be transported through many different platforms, devices, and applications without corruption. Support of Unicode forms the foundation for the representation of languages and symbols in all major operating systems, search engines, browsers, laptops, and smartphones, plus the internet and World Wide Web.
0: Thank you, Nate, and I really look forward to getting into this conversation with Kevin.
2: I'm a typeface designer uh, by day, dad by all other times, and uh, and I'm also a typography researcher in, in my professional work. So I focus on doing typeface design and research for uh, minority languages, and then being a Canadian. Uh, Primarily, I focus on doing research uh, into language support and issues that North American Indigenous communities are facing that pose barriers to their language revitalization and preservation uh, programs. So that's me in a nutshell. I like to hike and canoeing, biking, painting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, so before again, like we jump into just like your amazing work into indigenous type revitalization, uh, we just wanted to ask, like, what got you into type design in the first place? Yeah,
2: no, so that's a really great question. Um, so I came to typeface design. Maybe uh, I think what I've realized is a pretty common entry point, which is through graphic design. So. Um, I moved to uh, Toronto from a small town when I was 17 to go to graphic design school. And I did my uh, undergraduate at uh, Humber College. And after that, I became interested in typography just through the studies in the program. Um, And I started working at the Coach House Press in Toronto as well as at Canada Type. So I was splitting my time. At these two companies, so Canada Type being a digital font studio, uh, Coach House Press being a typographically focused printing company where they did a lot of book printing and other projects. So more on the user side and then also on the making of the font side. So I became interested just because I've always been interested in graphic illustration, graphic design, and that's why I came to study graphic design. And then coming to type design that way, um, I became, I, be, I realized more of what type design was more about in regards to how it was different than graphic design, only after I started to study it at a more serious level. Um, and I can speak about that, speak to that a little bit later. Um, but that's really how I got into it. Graphics, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's so funny how we start out doing one thing, and then all of a sudden we find this little niche and go, ooh, I like that, and you kind of dive in deeper. But what we're really, uh, really excited to chat with you about today is is kind of what led you into this world of of kind of minority languages and the the preservation of minority languages. So kind of how... Did your ongoing commitment or does your ongoing commitment for indigenous language revitalization and preservation? How did that all begin?
2: Yeah, so getting it when I started to follow and pursue a career in typeface design, I never thought about the language support side of it, and in fact, I didn't realize how interconnected language in general was to what a type designer does, or at least what I believe is what we should be thinking about is type designers making language tools or tools for graphic communication. Um, my background, so I grew up in a small community in uh, on the Bruce Peninsula, so around Owen Sound, Ontario. And I grew up going to school and having friends who are Anishinaabe community members. And so I was aware from a young age about struggles that the community members faced. And in particular, I, I did become aware of even at a young age of language loss, because the local high school that I went to had a, you could study Ojibwe, which would replace your French compulsory credit. And I think back to myself, oh, why didn't I take that class? Um, not that it's not that taking French wasn't a good thing either, but uh, it would have been such a neat opportunity to learn a language that was even more local to where I was growing up and with the and to to explore that. But but of course, I went away to school and I didn't think about those broader issues uh, and the impact that they had on the indigenous communities. Um, And it wasn't until I went to the University of Reading in the United Kingdom to do my master's in typeface design that I started to think more about being well being exposed to this side of typeface design where um, you can have an impact on language support because language, uh, especially minority languages are quite affected by lack of standardization or lack of availability of not even just typefaces that can render their writing systems properly, but the platforms where our digital type has to exist on. So becoming aware of those issues, I started to think about what I grew up, like where I grew up and what I was, uh, what I was observing from my friends in school, struggles that their community was having with just trying to reconnect to language. So I started to make some connections at that time Then when I moved back to Toronto, I was doing a bit of teaching and type design. Um, And around April, March 2020, uh, right right on the time that the pandemic was happening, I was looking for opportunities to collaborate with the Type Foundry. And I had reached out to several different companies, but uh, Peter Bielak of the Tipotech Type Foundry in The Hague, Netherlands, uh, he got back to me and he said, well, we don't have um, uh, any general type projects right now to collaborate on, but uh, he was interested in the syllabics work that I had done at the University of Reading as part of my uh, master's thesis project. And so um, Peter invited me to make a proposal to work on a project that would research comprehensively all of the technical issues and the local typographic preferences of all the indigenous communities across North America that use the syllabics writing system. Um, and so I prepared a proposal and we came to Peter said, let's go for it. and we started working on that. And so that's how I got into working on indigenous language revitalization and preservation efforts from this side of the language support. So, language support being the tools fonts keyboards looking at standards level issues so a lot of the times um, when we come from a graphic design education we think about fonts as being uh, tools that we use in order to communicate different types of uh, messages graphically speaking but for a lot of minority language communities it's it can be a huge barrier to just being able to not only use their language, but it can put their languages at uh, the threat of digital extinction because they don't have the ability to even use their, they can't text uh, because they're missing characters, um, which is the one community that I started working with the natural League community. I realized that in their syllabics orthography chart, even on Wikipedia, there were blank boxes, or there were these hacked solutions to try to represent glyphs that weren't in Unicode. And of course, people were very creative in finding, trying to find workarounds. Um, but the, what they were really lacking was at a digital text standard level, they didn't have code points for the characters, for some of the characters that they needed. So their orthography was incomplete, meaning some people couldn't write their name properly. Which is such a profound thing to think about when, like, let's say that we're using English language, it's, we don't even think about that. We just pick up a device and we start using it because all the fonts support our languages. And European languages are very well covered as well. Um, but for these communities, it's, it's not just an afterthought, it's a barrier towards access. So that's how I started getting into it. It was making making those connections at, in my master's studies and thinking about my experiences from uh, my youth. And then also bringing along what I learned about and was passionate about in regards to type design as well and sort of uh, bringing those things together. Um, I was lucky to study it at a research intensive school in the UK, the University of Reading in their type design program. So I I learned many great research skills as well as type design skills that would allow me to take on work like this. So that's how I got into it. And of course, just to add as a final note, being a Canadian person, I know that there are people that might not be so aware about reconciliation, but I've always, since a young age, been thinking about how I could be a positive uh, participant in helping with the process of reconciliation and language revitalization and preservation, which is a key uh, part of that, so that's all those factors are part of how I got into doing this kind of work in particular. Yeah, yeah, I think I think it's really
1: fascinating how uh, you know you 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 took your interest for graphic design, found that niche interest in typography and then also found a way to almost like give back because first first of all if I had the opportunity to learn Ojibwe too I probably would have jumped at it as well because I struggled so Mm -hmm. much in French Um, but I think it's I think it's great because even when I was doing some reading into your work into your projects I, I found it so interesting that even characters that may not necessarily be used currently in their language already some like uh some uh, syllabics that may have been uh not really used in some languages just to preserve them in the digital space so that they don't they aren't forgotten and that they are preserved i think it's just an amazing uh, initiative that you've started and you've you've touched on it already just how uh it's a barrier just for them to do things, even like simply write their name in a digital space, because unlike Latin alphabets, uh, syllabics have a lot more when it comes to uh, you know, writing a sentence out. And so uh, what I, I wanted to ask is what are, what are some of the challenges or some of the biggest challenges that you've uh, faced and have overcome when it came to you know, better representing Aboriginal syllabics in the digital space?
2: Yeah, well, one of the so when I got started on working on the project, the the first phase was starting a comprehensive research component. So the plan was first to um, conduct research to the point where we could identify what the what local variations existed with typographic preferences from community to community, because we knew that there were some variations. We didn't realize the extent of those variations, which is the wonderful thing about research is that you get to unlock all kinds of things. But what was key about this project and how I started it was making sure that I learned a a research methodology that was um, going to be respectful and appropriate for working with language keepers in the different communities. And so some of my early earliest work was just learning how to do that. Uh, Memorial University in uh, Newfoundland has a really great resource um, uh, that talks, to, that basically presents research methodologies for how settler researchers can reach out to Indigenous communities to build, a, to build a relationship. And there really is a process of relationship building that has to exist because I'm a, I'm a settler person of European um, uh, heritage. And I'm very well aware, having grown up in a community that was a settler, and indigenous community where everybody was interacting, I'm aware of the tensions between the two two parties, if you will. And so I knew that it was very important that I engaged in a process of community outreach first and worked on building a relationship, and I was lucky to have some um, to reach out to friendship centres, Indigenous friendship centres um, that you can find in most communities in, uh, across Canada. And a lot of people, Indigenous people, gave me some really great advice about and they were very open about it. Um, they, did, they, they were very supportive uh, and they gave me a lot of great advice. So the, the, the major thing was first being able to do that and then a lot of issues presented themselves. Um, I did discover some issues which led me to reaching out specifically to the natural community in Western Nunavut, um, and as well as to the Dakath community in central British Columbia, uh, looking at problems that they were facing with their syllabics. And a lot of it came down to the fact that um, their syllabics orthographies weren't being represented in, in some way um, at the Unicode standard level. So the Unicode standard being the standard, uh, the global standard for digital text exchange. Um, But what that means for a language is that if you if you're going to be able to engage in digital text exchange in this manner, you have to have support. Um, You have to have your characters that you need in your writing system encoded as code points. and you also have to have them represented accurately as well, because what what happens oftentimes with typeface design for scripts, I shouldn't say outside of Latin script, but let's say like designing typefaces outside of English, French, or, or high-speaking population languages, often what a lot of designers do is they'll go to look at the Unicode code charts to get an idea of what the what what are the needs, the requirements of a font uh, in terms of the code points? And are there any technical requirements that are mentioned in the spec, the specification, but also what are the ideal versions of the characters supposed to look like? Um, So for the Naturally community, it wasn't a matter of representation in terms of the visual glyphs, but it was that they were missing 12 code points altogether And with the DACA community in central British Columbia, they were uh, most of their uh, representative glyphs in the syllabics code chart were incorrectly represented, some of them more so than others. Um, So these were the the major barriers that I encountered right away. And the other aspect about doing a project like this, where you're developing a typeface for us a writing system like syllabics and many others is that i can't open up my glyphs app software or whatever font uh, design software i want to use i can't open it up and go okay i want to design a syllabics font click the tab open and i get all these glyphs that's just not even you can't do it and it's not even built into the back end of the app where i can go in and select select the glyphs from a list i actually have to make that glyph set first and define what that should be. And going through the process of defining that glyph set led me to realize that some of these communities are missing code points. Uh, some of them are not represented correctly. So you have to actually go through and do that. So you, there's another barrier even from that side too. But it's, a not, it's not a typical font design process where you just open it up, you start de- drawing glyphs. You have to first do all this work first to set up your set the stage for designing the font first, um, and through that process, uh, being able to tackle the language support issues. So I would say that the major barrier was was the Unicode side that had to be overcome, even a, even to be able to first define what the glyph set for that for this font would be, um, and then. The, the process of community outreach was very important because then I was able to have a, um, a relationship where I was being the active listener and hearing what the language keepers had uh, had as barriers that they were facing and documenting those. Um, and I didn't get to speak to every single community that uses syllabics, but in those situations, I was doing a lot of research with materials as well. And trying to weigh both historical materials and contemporary materials, and looking at what should, what is the uh, the best representation of their, or an ideal representation of their characters. So those were the major major barriers that that had to be first identified and overcome.
0: It definitely does not sound like a typical type design project. It's it seems like uh, one step forward, two steps back, right? And understanding the complicated relationships and that relationship building that has to exist, as you as you mentioned, and then understanding how to work with a piece of software for for symbols that don't aren't necessarily supported or don't exist. So it is, yeah. It it, it seems like a really intense undertaking and I'm just Hmm. I'm really curious so one of the major barriers was that that Unicode piece what was the process like for kind of creating and submitting a proposal to the Unicode technical committee because I can't imagine like I I think I read somewhere that it took two years is that right
2: yeah yeah (laughs) well I mean so the total project took about two years I would say that the first proposal I got the Of course, it was my first time ever working on a Unicode proposal in uh, July 2020. Um, So I had no experience before and I didn't, I was naive coming into it, not knowing how long it could take. Some proposals take years and they don't go anywhere. Um, But uh, I got the impression that uh, the proposal that I worked on went quite quickly and a lot of that had to do with, I think, the fact that I was able to work with the community members and they were giving me all the evidence that I needed to prepare a, a convincing um, and well-rounded proposal that would get accepted. But so, the, I guess at a, at a basic level, a Unicode proposal essentially takes an issue that might exist in the standard or the requirement for an addition. So, that could be an issue like... This community is missing a few glyphs that they require, and we would like to request additions to the to the Unicode standard. Or there's an issue in representation of the of the of the glyphs in the code charts, which matters for font development and support. Or maybe there's an issue at a at another lower infrastructural level, in terms of the the um, the data Unicode data. So what? The general process is that you draft a proposal to present the issues and you you present your case. Um, And the process that is advisable to work through is actually first presenting your proposal to the script ad hoc committee, which is a committee of experts who work on the Unicode technical committee. And what you do is you uh, submit that proposal to the monthly meetings and you get feedback and recommendations from the experts and then you keep working on your proposal um, until you get it to a point where the script ad talk committee will provide um, a recommendation of your proposal at the next major unicode technical committee meeting Um, because that's when proposals will go up for acceptance Uh, and the first thing that I should say is that, of course, it was really important for me to work with the community members, but I couldn't have been able to do the proposal without working with uh, my colleague at Tipotech, Liang Hai, uh, who works on works with Unicode, and he is on the Script Ad Hoc Committee. That was a that was a good lucky scenario as well. Um, but he helped me so much in understanding how to navigate a proposal, but also how to think about unicode from the perspective of what the requirements of unicode side things are but also how to think about working with unicode as a font designer through the whole process of working on the project so i owe uh, uh, a lot to him Um, and then yes working with the community members so the process was i would uh, communicate over email with the language keepers that i was working with and uh, we identified, and you need to show evidence for every single character that you want to ask for. And, and it's better to show printed evidence, too. So looking for a, a printed evidence, which was available, and then getting letters of support, things like that. So we went through that, and we did it probably about, I, th- I would say, a couple of months of uh, feedback and then working on the proposal, getting it all correct, specifying what we proposed as the character data as well. So we had to propose that for a new character because you have to propose exactly how these new code points will fit into the standard and how it's going to comply with everything. So we went through that process um, of collaboration and in finally getting a recommendation from the script ad hoc committee who were so helpful as well. They were really great to work with. And then in October, the proposal went up to the Unicode technical committee and they accepted it because there was no reason why they, the need was there. Everything was in place and the proof was there. And so uh, we got the acceptance. And then the characters became official this past September. So it takes about your a proposal gets accepted and then it becomes an official part potentially in a version of the Unicode standard, maybe the the following year. Um, But because there was a great need for the characters, they were pushed to make sure that they were in version 14, which was this past September. The other proposal I worked on for a little bit longer because there was more uh, evidence to gather. And it was a slightly bigger proposal in terms of getting, revising the representative glyphs for the Dakoth or carrier syllabics in the uh in the syllabics encoding so with that one i was also working with the language keepers in the dakoth community uh who are the they're responsible for attending the conditions of the syllabics And which for them like in the Natural league community and most inuit com- uh, inuk communities they use syllabics it's their main writing system roman is a secondary thing in the dakoth community they almost lost use of the syllabics completely and now they're trying very hard to revive it because it is a more ideal way to write the language represents the pure language better so of course that's important for their system but the problem that they were having is that they had all the code points there but in standard uh, system level fonts the characters looked really strange to them they because they were not represented correctly from the beginning in the Unicode charts. And and I wouldn't blame, I don't blame the font designers who developed the system level fonts because they were doing what I think they should have done is they should have looked at that specification when developing such a um, essential level font on an operating system. They were looking at the Unicode spec to make sure that it complied with that. So the issue was in when the code charts were developed in the early 1990s. In the research that I did, I couldn't find that the Dacath community members had a seat at the table. In fact, the specification that provided justification for the decisions showed samples of Cree and Ojibwe and Inuktitut um, uh, syllabics texts, even uh, Dene syllabics texts, but they didn't show any DACA or carrier syllabics texts. Um, so it looks like to me, they didn't have, re- have a, a representative to say, this is what our characters need to look like. So what it resulted in is a lot of uh, just abandonment of the syllabics in the community. And now what we're, we're at, uh, we're at a point now where the code charts are, will represent what their characters should look like. So the fonts that we released through Tipotech show the correct appearance of the DACA syllabics as they should look um, and then the system level fonts will follow as the unicode standard is updated but so that means that they'll be able to write an email and it won't look strange because what happened was that the, the DACA syllabics were harmonized to fit with the visual appearance of the Inuktitut or the Cree ojibwe syllabics um, that happened as well for the dene syllabics too where the representations of their characters started, they they were over harmonized to the point where they they were trying to be forced into the pattern of those syllabics in terms of their proportions and style. But they actually need to follow a different, slightly different proportional structure. Um, so we built that case and that was a much larger proposal because it had to show a lot of, there were like 170 characters or something that we had to r- propose um, focusing on the ones that were majorly different. But now we were able to get to something where I think that the proposal went up in April of last year and actually about a year ago, and it was accepted. Maybe, on, no, actually it was July. I'm sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of things we've been doing, but, so I, but we got it to get accepted and then the, the code charts will hopefully be uh, published in a, with the revised version um, in September, 2022. So that propo- the proposal process is a pretty involved process and it involves a lot of research. Like the education that I got at the University of Reading is very important, I think, to being able to have done this work as well as the work with the communities. Um, And I've learned a lot through the process about Unicode and what, what Unicode means to language support, how it's interconnected, but what it means to font design as well and how it influences language revitalization efforts. Yeah.
0: It's all very technical. It's all. Oh, yeah. It's all. It's I'm like right here, and and oh. it's. Uh, yeah, no, but it's 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 really interesting mm. to hear about what is involved because I think, as you said, we take for granted, uh, granted so much of our English language support that we can just jump on and type an email. But that's not the case for some of these mm. minority languages that, as you have alluded to, that that really haven't had the Unicode support in the past and that you're helping to kind of bridge that gap or 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 fill in that gap so what i'm really curious to know now is that so what does the successful unicode applications and this typeface creation and all of the the work that you have done what does this mean now to the indigenous communities what can they do now that they were not able to do before
2: Well, at a baseline level, what it means is that they can confidently and reliably use their syllabics, which um, my colleague, language keeper, uh, the Inuk language keeper, uh, Janet Tamalik McGrath, told me is that what it does is it gives ownership to the communities, and it also allows them to use the writing system that the community self-identifies with in the one that they wish to identify with so it means that they can they can write emails and they can write text messages and they can write their language without having to make any compromises in the orthography so they have a they can use their orthography as they wish to use it and as they require it to be used and beyond that as well what it also means is that their oral traditions that they're doing so much work to Uh, document right now, they can write it accurately with fully Unicode compliant text, which means that 50 years from now, as long as we're still following the Unicode standard, which I imagine we will be, uh, somebody can open up a text that was stored in the database somewhere and it will be represented the same way that it was written or, well, written isn't the right word, that it was digitally encoded by somebody today, let's say. Um, It can be opened in 50 years, let's say, hypothetically, and it will read exactly the way that that person encoded it with a keyboard. Um, So that's the significant thing is that they're able to now engage at a more in-depth and active level with their revitalization efforts and preservation efforts. So preservation in terms of preserving texts, but revitalization in terms of Now allowing especially youth to get more engaged with using the language. Um, Like if you can't use your language on a cell on a smartphone and you can't use it in more everyday settings, it presents a huge barrier to being able to revitalizing the use of it because a language requires like daily use to really lift it up, but also get it to be something that people use at a level where they become, they they have mastery over the language. So this is a huge step for them. They can use it in everyday situations. Very simple, trivial things that we would take for granted. Um, From the perspective of the DACA community as well, what it means is that now they don't have to find customized font solutions that represent their glyphs in the way that it's supposed to, they can also write emails and text messages that look like they, it actually looks like dacath syllabics because what um, the language keeper uh, Francois Prince told me is he said that this doesn't look like DACA syllabics. It sort of does, he said, but it, it doesn't actually, it doesn't look right. And, and so we, a lot of people will just write with Roman in that case because it looks strange to them to write an email with the wrong font, he called it. So what it means is that it just means more engagement and it means more ownership for the communities over their writing system. Um, Because a lot of the ownership is not fully in their hands because the Unicode technical committee, it makes decisions on these, on these factors, on these aspects. Um, but things like this, once we can get to the point where the standard now supports what, what they prefer and expect the writing system to look like, they, they can feel comfortable that they have a foundation to just use the language typographically speaking. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think it's incredible in all of the work that you've put into preserving and revitalizing, uh, Aboriginal syllabics is just uh incredible. And um, you know, even even just from the way you speak, there like you are so passionate and dedicated to this. And that's very, very uh inspiring. And um, I I really like what you said about uh what it what'll it mean for the community about taking ownership of their language and really giving them uh like a platform for them to be able to revitalize and preserve their languages because for for us writing writing in like roman it's again we do take it for granted like a lot of people will just take a very nice typeface use it as the face of their brand and like use that for their identity but in in syllabics and like having that available for them it's a much deeper sense of identity for them to be able to have this platform and so it's incredible Uh, what you're doing. And again, it's, it's um, inspiring to see your passion for it. And uh, like Diana mentioned, we are, or I am in her class. And one of our biggest assignments is to create a custom typeface. And I can't speak for the other students in this class, but at least for me, it was a very eye-opening experience just to be able to like dip my toe into the, to this like huge world of type design and I did I really did enjoy the project myself and so uh, I wanted to ask you for any other students out there who may have found an interest in this niche of type design what advice would you have for them to continue and pursue typography in the future
2: yeah that's that's a really great question because type design is a field that used to be quite small because Certain companies had, to, um, there were only so many uh, jobs available, but now the field is actually quite wide because type is used in type used to be centralized printing in much more smaller um, areas of, uh, of access. Now everybody uses type or it needs to use type in some way. Like some of the things that we were talking about, like using type on a smartphone, that's typography. Um even on our computer, that's typography. When we use fonts, that's how we type on a screen. So in somewhere in there, a typographer or a type designer has to make some decisions to make something work properly or thinking about language support. That's one aspect. There are others. I think that somebody who wants to pursue type design further, if they're just getting started, I think that what you want to learn to do is of course you need to learn a lot of technical skills and artistic skills and that takes time to develop but i think that actually the most important thing is to start looking at how and where people use type and try to ask questions about what they need their fonts to do because that can be so many different things like what i need my font to do in my um in my smartphone and applications and on different applications can be different from what I need a font in a in a magazine to do, or a newspaper. Newspapers are a great case study in type design, but so are typefaces for operating systems, smartphone operating systems. Um, so I think what's really important is that a type designer should be probably, I think, should be more concerned about what people need fonts to do than thinking about just your own ideas, because of course we have. Lot, plenty of ideas that we develop that are both visual ideas, aesthetic ideas. And we can have technical ideas too, because we're users as well. Um, but I think that learning to look at type and how people use it and what they need to do is the best thing. Because when I was a graphic design student and I developed some typefaces because I was so interested in it. And I put it in my portfolio and I went to the first uh, show that I think the RGD was putting on um, or Applied Arts Magazine or something. And, And it was so great that the first person I saw was checking out my font and they're like, the thing is, I don't know where I would use this font. And at the time I didn't know exactly what to make of that. But when I kept thinking about it years later even, I thought, oh, this is the greatest advice that someone could give me trying to learn to be a type designer. Is that they need to know how they are going to be able to use it how can because it's a tool so what i learned um through all of this process of studying in the past nine or ten years now is that type design you should think about it more like industrial design or from that perspective thinking like an industrial designer i'm making a product a tool that people need to use and thinking about establishing criteria to meet That those needs is for in terms of a design product and a process, I think is better than thinking about type design like graphic design because they it is related to graphic design because graphic designers use it, and also the aesthetic foundation behind graphic design is very useful to a type designer. But ultimately, the act of type design is more like industrial design, which means looking at well, the ergonomics of using the font, if we use that kind of analogy, like how do people need it? How, what is legible? What's readable within the context of where the font's being used? Because that changes. So it's very nuanced. Um, like another thing, Indigenous language support, we talked about syllabics in our discussion, but there are a lot of communities on the let's, the Pacific Northwest coast who use the Roman alphabet, but they use an orthography that requires a lot of technical infrastructure to be present in order for their fonts to have diacritics that stack on top of one another. Also in order to have things like uh, uh, marks that that come from the international phonetic alphabet that have to be built into those fonts as well. So you have to look at this technical side of things too. and that comes from looking at it from like user perspective. Yeah. But even if I wasn't doing language support, I would still think about font design this way. So looking uh, from that perspective is going to make you a much better type designer. But it'll give you, I think it'll it'll speed up things, though, too. Yeah. In terms of the learning. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think I definitely agree because while I was completing this project, a lot of my colleagues seemed to lean towards more creating display typefaces um, because I guess for them it was easier. There was a lot more creative freedom, I feel like, when creating a typeface for display. But what I came to realize when I was making mine is that towards the end, I really got interested in exactly like why and the why and the how of uh, this typeface will be used because as I was as I was doing it I was like oh where else could I use this besides just for large signage and um, even the research that I did and how every the thought process of what goes into a typeface was so interesting and looking back I wish I had gone for a more copy typeface and approach because it like just uh learning about how to improve legibility and readability and it all comes down to the design of every single glyph was just so fascinating and uh yeah like I definitely agree with the advice you gave and like thank you it's it's a really big help and you know, we, we will see, like, this is definitely an area that I'm very interested in. And so I will definitely take that knowledge oh, forward.
2: Thank you. So hey, much. you're welcome. And I'm glad. And thanks for having me to, uh, just to, to come in and join and speak with you both. It was great.
0: Thank you, Kevin, so much for your, yeah, your time and your energy and your, your enthusiasm for this topic. And I guess just, I have one kind of final quick question, which is to ask what's next, what are you doing next?
2: Oh, well, so I'm still working with uh, Tipotec and we're starting some new work in the area of indigenous revitalization and preservation. But we're just at the early stages now, which is is always exciting. i like I really love being involved at the start of a project. I like the like to to see the project through as well, but it's so exciting to be at the beginning when you're starting to cultivate the parameters for the project and the research. So we're, we're just basically continuing um, continuing that language support work. And then also I'm working with the NaturalEak and the DACA communities to help migrate from the Unicode proposals to getting um, everything set up and revised at the level of the operating systems like macOS, Windows, um, Android. So just helping them to sort of navigate that process and see it through. So that's real, that's where I'm at and where I'm going. And I hope to share more in a little bit with everybody.
0: Incredible. Thank you so much, Kevin, for all of your time and all of your work on this project. It's it's really, as Nate alluded to, it's inspiring to see that the ways in which you are helping to revitalize and, and preserve these minority languages that, that need that technical uh, know-how to be able to do this. So thank you so much.
2: Hey, no, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you both.